Well, that's great. You know where I'm from, we talk about Southern hospitality. And that's a real thing. It really is such a thing as Southern hospitality. But there's one thing better than Southern hospitality, and that's Christian hospitality. And I have shown, been shown great Christian hospitality from the church here, from Pastor Charlie and Pastor James and all of you guys. And it's been a lot of fun to be with you this weekend. Hey, let's get our Bibles out and let's turn to the book of Job. The book of Job. I'm actually going to take advantage of, of just being here one Sunday and I'm going to get, uh, I figured I'd go ahead and, and make the most of the opportunity. I'm going to teach 42 chapters this morning. That'd be all right? 42 chapters, but we're going to read one verse. So if you'll turn to Job chapter 31, Job chapter 31, and we're going to read verse 35. And the title of my message this morning, When God Doesn't Give a Reason. Job chapter 31, verse 35. Job cries out, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my mark. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me that my prosecutor had written a book. Father in heaven, bless our thoughts, our meditations this morning. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts in a profound way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. At a kid's summer camp, a counselor was leading a discussion on creation. He explained why God created the clouds and the trees and the rocks and the rivers and the animals, that God had a good reason for all that he had created. Well, that's when one little boy asked, if God has a good purpose for everything, then why did he create poison ivy? Well, his question was followed by dead silence. The counselor didn't really know how to answer. Finally, another child in the class came to the rescue. He explained, Well, the reason God created poison ivy is because he wants us to know there's a few things we just need to keep our cotton-picking hands off of. (laughs) A good explanation indeed. I believe when we get to heaven, we'll discover that every story begun in this life does finish with a happy ending. There is a good reason for everything God does. The problem, though, is that we don't always see his purpose. There are issues in our life, like poison ivy, that cause great grief, and for no apparent reason. Some situations have no sane, logical explanation, and we wonder why. How do you respond when bad things happen and God gives no reason why? Well, as Christians, we believe that God is sovereign, that He does whatever He likes, whenever He likes, however He likes, to whomever He likes. He rules the universe, both good and evil. God is the boss. Read the first chapter of the book of Job, and you'll notice Satan can't harm a single hair on Job's head without first getting God's permission. Nothing happens in our lives, or in the universe for that matter, that isn't at the very least permitted by God. Of course, God's sovereignty is a wonderful doctrine when circumstances are pleasant, when our life is going well. Oh, we're delighted that God has chosen to bless us. But what's your attitude when life takes a turn for the worse and for no apparent reason? In my early years as a Christian, I had a friend who was a captivating Bible teacher. Dan had a growing ministry. He was a husband and a father of five kids. 
His teaching and his ministry were influencing thousands of lives for Jesus, including my own. I'll never forget the day when I heard on the radio the prop plane that he had been flying had slammed into the side of a mountain. The news broke my heart. And I can remember sitting there crying out, God, why? Look at all that he's doing for your kingdom, Lord. Why this? This is also how I respond today when I hear of a hurricane that devastates an island or floods a coastline or a family on vacation killed by a drunk driver or a virtuous woman who's been raped or a school shooter who targets innocent kids or a hardworking husband who gets laid off and can no longer feed his family or a child born with a severe handicap or a follower of Jesus diagnosed with a cancer. What happens to your faith when you encounter these kinds of terrible situations? How do you respond when bad stuff happens to good people, even God's people, and you see nothing good result? Have you ever asked why? Oh my. Have you ever screamed why? How do you deal with the poison ivy in your life? Well, understand, Job dealt with plenty of poison ivy. In the first two chapters of the book, we learn how that overnight, Job lost everything. His fortune, his family, his fitness, even his friends. And usually a man in such distress can lean on the comfort of a devoted wife. But not Job. You remember what Mrs. Job told him? Why don't you just curse God and die? That's not exactly what you want to hear from the missus after a hard day at the office. I'm sure you've heard of the stress factor index. It's a set of numerical values that try to quantify the amount of stress produced by certain events in our life. For example, the death of a spouse equals a 100. The death of a close family member is a 63. Fired from a job is a 47. A pregnancy is a 40. That's for the wife. It's 140 for the husband. (laughs) And on and on it goes. Well, the experts say that 79% of those whose stress factor index hit 300 plus suffers a major illness as a consequence. Well, when I calculated Job's stress factor index, it added up to 650, twice the danger level. Hey, if you think you got problems, just check out our man Job. And here's the kicker. Job did nothing to deserve what had happened to him. Job gets vindicated from the outset. Chapter 1, verse 1 tells us Job was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. In chapter 2, verse 3, the Lord himself says that all that happened to Job came upon him, and I quote, without a cause. Yes, Job was human, and like all humans, he was a sinner. But he had done nothing specific to warrant his calamity. If you doubt Job's devotion to God, just look at the initial reaction to his loss in chapter 1, verse 21. He utters these words, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Friends, I think that's one of the most profound statements of faith in all the scripture. Job chapter 1, verse 22 sums up Job's part in his many afflictions. In all this, Job did not sin. Now in Job chapters 1 and 2, we are told why all this devastation occurred in Job's life. 
You see, Job got caught in the middle of a cosmic showdown between God and Satan. One day, the devil appeared before God in the heavenly host. And like a proud papa, God mentioned the piety of his servant Job. Satan just scoffed. He said, well, God, you've blessed Job so abundantly. Why wouldn't he serve you? Just allow a little hardship in his life, and he'll turn on you in a heartbeat. Ironically, rather than being punished for some evil deed, Job's agony was caused by just the opposite. God was so proud of Job's devotion, he staked his honor on Job's reactions. Without knowing it, Job was serving as the appointed protector of God's glory. You know, whenever I read the book of Job, I'm struck by an often overlooked fact, and that's this. Job never read the first two chapters of the book of Job. He never did. Hey, we're told why he suffered, but not Job. Until the day he died, Job never got an explanation for his calamity. God never told Job why. But that sure didn't stop his friends from trying to answer the question. And for the bulk of the book, from chapters 3 through 31, three pals, if you want to call them that, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar each take their turns offering their explanation for the cause of Job's sufferings. I figured they were golfing buddies. They were a foursome that met every Saturday morning. And when Job didn't show up one week, they came to check on their friend. When they arrive, they find Job. He's just sitting there in the middle of the ash heap. He's scratching his oozing sores with a clay shard, with a broken piece of pottery. And for seven days, they just sit there in silence, mourning for their friend. As it turns out, just sitting there with Job, being there for Job, was really the only benefit they offered. For when they open their mouths, they begin to torture Job with erroneous counsel. In fact, in chapter 16, verse 2, Job tells them how much help they were. He says, miserable comforters are you all. See, Job's golfing buddies are like many people today who are trapped in a restrictive, defective theology. I like to call it a kindergarten theology. It's the simplistic view, it's the belief that in this life, sin is always punished and good is always rewarded. Thus, when bad things happen, it means that the victim must have committed some sin. And as children, our experiences with mommy and daddy seem to confirm this belief. Parents see to it that good deeds are prized and that disobedience is punished. Oh, but then we move out into the real world and we discover that's not always how life pans out. Bad things do happen to good people. Bad people often get away with their crimes. Circumstances are not always just. Life isn't always fair. You know, being a bit of a golfer myself, I've noticed how, in particularly, golfing buddies like to hold to this simplistic kindergarten theology. When a golfer hits an errant shot off into the woods and it caroms off a tree trunk, bounces back into the middle of the fairway, usually he'll laugh and he'll say to his partner, well, looks like I'm living right. As if holy living entitles you to favorable breaks, but unholy living leaves you in the rough. Friends, I wish life were that straightforward, but it's not. See, this is what Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar refuse to admit. They become adamant. 
For 29 chapters, they scrutinized Job to uncover the slightest chink in his armor on which they can blame his demise. At points in the dialogue, they even make up stuff. They create accusations that aren't true. Job's three friends try every tactic imaginable to pin a sin on Job. Tragically, there are also Christians today who hold to the same faulty theology. In fact, listen to most TV preachers today and you'll hear them teach a kindergarten theology. Oh, do the right thing and you'll be rich. You'll be healthy and happy. You'll be driving that Lexus in no time. Trust me, TBN would have never invited Job to host a show. I have a friend who suffers from chronic asthma. She's a godly lady. She's a woman of prayer. And yet her Christian friends tried to put a sin on her. They tried to insist that her suffering had to be the result of some sin in her life. Her friends, like Job's friends, went to great efforts to pin a sin on her. Reminds me of a Peanuts cartoon strip. Any of you like Peanuts? Snoopy's standing there next to his doghouse. It's been burned to the ground by fire. And he's sobbing. I lost my pool, my Van Gogh, all of my keepsakes. Lucy approaches him. And you know Lucy. She snaps at him. She says, I can tell you why your house burned down. You sinned. And Snoopy responds with one of the best theological answers ever uttered. In fact, Snoopy sounds a lot like Job. He answers, See, here's the problem with this kind of defective theology. It backs you into a corner so that when bad stuff happens in your life, you only have two options. Either God failed or you sinned. And that's why Job's friends insist that the problem has to be Job. For if it isn't, in their minds, it means that God has failed. And they're not about to entertain that possibility. In reality, though, neither assertion was true. The real cause of Job's sufferings was hidden in the heavens. You see, Job knows there's a reason. There has got to be another option. He just doesn't see it. And learning why becomes the burning issue in Job's life. Once there were two Americans, a couple of real gringos, two Americans, they traveled down to Mexico, Mexico City, to open up a bungee jumping operation. Well, as they erected the tower, a curious crowd of locals all gathered around to watch. Well, finally, it came time for a test jump. One of the guys, he dove off the platform. Well, when he bounced back up, his partner noticed that he was a little scraped up. He gasped. He said, oh, no, the cord must be too long. He tried to grab his friend, but he missed him. Well, the second time the guy bounced back up to the platform, he was in worse condition. He had some bruises and some broken ribs. Again, his buddy tried to grab him, and he missed him. Well, the third time the poor fellow rose back up to the platform, he was so badly beaten he was nearly unconscious. This time his sidekick lunged and grabbed him and pulled him to the platform. And he said, friend, he said, was the cord too long? His partner replied, no, the cord was just fine, but what's a piñata? <laughs> hey, Sometimes life gets rough. It'll beat you up and you don't know why. Or worse, it treats your partner, your spouse, or your coworker, or even your child like a pinata. And you get no explanation. 
He loves you, Lord. Why did this happen to him? She's such a good person, Lord, not her. We've all asked these questions, haven't we? Job, too, was a good and godly person, but virtue didn't insulate him from pain in his life. And remember, it wasn't Job's sin that made him a target for hardships. It was his goodness. Don't be deceived. Just because a person is hurting doesn't mean they're sinning. And just because they're thriving doesn't necessarily mean that God is pleased. Hey, it does pay to be good and godly. But payday doesn't always come in this life. In the here and now, calamity can strike even the godliest among us. Difficulties can hit without explanation. Hey, faith doesn't always get a reason. Don't let life back you into a corner. When things go wrong, we think there are only two conclusions. Either God failed or I'm a failure. And since none of us are going to blame God, it's got to be me. And so we beat ourselves up. But remember the story of Job. When bad stuff happens, it doesn't mean that God has failed, nor does it mean that you're a failure. There could be a reason hidden from view. Only heaven knows the whole story. And God is expecting you and I to trust in him. And this is why our responses on earth really do matter. For in a mysterious way, unknown to you and me, God's reputation may be hanging on the way we handle a hassle or a hardship or a hindrance. God's honor in heaven, his glory, may be riding on your reaction to the twists and turns life throws your way. To me, the message of Job is the most practical in all of the Bible. It ups the ante on everything that happens in my life. My every reaction becomes strategic. Every eye in heaven may be fixed on me to see how I handle that illness or that lie told about me or that lawsuit filed against me. Same is true for you. Every eye in heaven may be asking, will he fold or will he be faithful? You see, the book of Job teaches us a vital lesson. The stress in my life may just be a test of my faith. Listen, Satan has accused the Almighty of stacking the deck, of buying our devotion with his blessing. He assumes God is nothing more to us than a meal ticket. And he has thrown down the gauntlet. He's challenged God. Nix their blessing and they'll stop their devotion. Do you realize God may have chosen you to prove otherwise? God's character may be on the line in heaven, and it's your response to difficulty that wins the day. I'm just saying the stakes are a lot higher than any of us realize. The one certainty is that our reactions really do matter. Well, I have no doubt that Job would have gladly suffered for God if he'd just been told the effect his faithfulness was having in heaven. But you see, Job never got a hint. Understand, Job's greatest grief was not caused by his material losses or even the boils on his body. Job's most excruciating pain was not knowing why. You know, I found the best pain reliever by far is an Advil or Tylenol 3 or Demerol. It's an explanation. You know, if there's a good reason behind my sufferings, I tend to rise to the occasion. But how do you respond when God refuses to give you a reason? It's like going to the doctor to get a shot. <laughs> I don't like shots. But if I'm told the reason for the shot, I can accept it and endure it and perhaps even be thankful for it. 
But what if I'm given a series of shots without being told their reason? Well, trust me, I won't be as tolerant. I'll get downright upset and ugly. I'll start pounding my fist down on the counter, and I'll demand to know why. And that is exactly what Job begins to do. He begins to pound his fist. And over the course of the dialogue with his three friends, Job demands more and more and more to know why. In chapter 7, verse 11, Job even grows bitter. He moans these words, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. It's interesting, the word complain occurs more times in Job than any other book of the Bible. Did you know that nearly half the, of the complaints recorded in Scripture fall from the lips of this one man, Job? We speak of the patience of Job, but the person with the real patience in this story was God. God was the one who had to put up with Job's spewing bitterness. See, here's what happens. Job loses perspective, and that is easy for a sufferer to do. See, Job forgets who God is, His holiness, and His righteousness. Job grows bold and brash as he questions God in Job's mind, in his own estimation. Job becomes bigger and bigger and bigger, and God becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. It's been said, in asking why, Job loses his way. And by the time we get to our text this morning, chapter 31, verse 35, the verse we read earlier, Job believes God owes him an answer. In fact, he demands it in writing. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me that my prosecutor had written a book. God, I need a reason, and I want it in print. Arrogance has replaced Job's innocence. Job has become so sure of himself that he started to doubt God. And at one point in the dialogue, Job goes as far as to say to his friends, if my only two options are I've sinned or God has failed, then God has failed because I certainly haven't sinned. Job, who do you think you are? See, Job comes perilously close to blasphemy. In his commentary on Job, author Don Baker makes this point about pain. He writes, pain speaks a strange language. It plays funny tricks on us. It makes us think things, say things, even believe things that are not true. When pain bores its way through human flesh and into the human spirit and then just sits there and hurts and hurts, the mind becomes clouded and the brain begins to think strange thoughts like God is dead or he's gone fishing or he just doesn't care. You see, pain was having this kind of an effect on Job. And toward the end of Job's discourses, he starts challenging God to speak. He charges God with giving him a raw deal. And he accuses God of being unfair. In his attempts to vindicate himself, Job accuses the Lord. Job is more into proving his own innocence than he is in upholding God's justice. In short, Job cops an attitude. Always remember, there are chapters in your story that God has yet to write. Zophar can only speak so far. God had a glorious outcome for Job. In the end, he got double the blessings he had before. But until the day he died, he never learned the why behind his trials. You see, friends, there are some situations that have reasons that will only make sense when we get to heaven. 
Today we live a temporal, earthbound existence. And that's why it is wrong for us, from our limited perspective, to question or to criticize the Almighty. We're told in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. Never forget one of the first rules of theology. Where God has placed a period, don't you change it to a question mark. Hey, if God doesn't offer you an explanation, learn to live without one. Don't push it. Ultimatums don't work on God. We need to trust in His wisdom. So here's the big question for you and I this morning. Can we trust God even when we can't trace Him? Oh, it's easy to praise God when we see His hand at work, when His blessings, even His lessons are tangible. But is our faith alive enough to survive in the dark? Did you hear about the four passengers on a, they were traveling on a train from El Paso, Texas to New York, New York. All four riders were in the same compartment. There was a a Cowboys fan. There was a New York Giants fan, one of those haughty New York Giants fans. There was a gorgeous young woman and there was an elderly lady. Well, everyone was being very cordial until the train passed through this long, dark tunnel. Suddenly there was a loud kiss, followed by an equally loud slap. When the train exited the tunnel, each of the passengers were sitting there quietly, just kind of looking at each other, trying to figure out what the noises had meant. Well, the beautiful woman thought, my, that's odd. A New York Giants fan tries to kiss an elderly woman and not me. Well, the elderly lady, she thought, my, that young girl, she's a fine young woman. She has some good morals. Well, the Giants fan thought, wow, that Cowboys fan, he's a smart guy. He steals a kiss and I get slapped. While the Cowboys fan sits there gloating, perfect. I kiss the back of my hand, slap a Giants fan, and nobody ever knows. (laughs) The point is, is that sometimes things happen in the dark. And God chooses not to reveal his specific reasons. And if we're not careful, we can draw the wrong conclusions, can't we? Yes, we can. Reminds me of the little boy who was scared of the dark. Late one night, his mother asked him to fetch the broom off the back porch. Well, he balked. He said, but mommy, it's dark out there. The mother told him, said, honey, don't worry. Jesus is always with you. He's with you wherever you go, even when you're in the dark. The little guy, he walks over to the back door, cracks it open a few inches, and then he calls out, Hey, Jesus, if you're out there, how about handing me that broom? (laughs) Realize, God wants us all to learn that Jesus is with us, even in the dark places. Well, how do you react when circumstances occur you don't deserve? Have you grown bitter? Have you become angry? Have you been pounding your fist? Have you been demanding an explanation? Is your name Job? Well, let me show you how God finally responds to Job. In chapter 38, you can turn there if you'd like. God appears to Job, but not to answer his questions. No, God takes a most unusual tack. He comes to Job asking questions, not answering them. And for five chapters... Job asked, God asked Job a series of questions he can't possibly answer. 
a total of 70 unanswerable questions. The Almighty God is about to show His servant Job He doesn't know as much as He thinks He does. It's time for God to put Job back in His place. Well, God appears to Job in the whirlwind and He says to him in verse 2, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? In other words, who's this guy I've been listening to who doesn't know what he's talking about? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. It's time for some humble pie, buddy. God is about to remind Job that you spell the word God, G-O-D, not J-O-B. In verse 4, God begins his quiz. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Job has been instructing God on how to run the universe. But here God makes it clear he doesn't really need Job's help. God was doing fine long before Job came along. God asked Job, tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. God even gets sarcastic. He's saying, okay, Job, was it you holding the other end of the tape measure when we measured out the universe? I don't think so. See, throughout this book, Job's incessant questioning of God's wisdom implied that he could do a better job of running the universe than God. But could he? Can you? On and on, these questions continue. God keeps firing queries at Job. He has no way to answer. You know, it's interesting, as Job questioned God, in Job's estimation, he had grown larger and larger, and God had gotten smaller and smaller. But when the roles are reversed, and it's God who's now questioning Job, suddenly in Job's thinking, it's God who's becoming larger and larger again. And it's Job who's becoming smaller and smaller and tiny. Job is getting taken down a notch or two. As we say down south, he's getting whittled down to size. Up against God's infinite wisdom, a finite Job knows very little. What right does he have to question or criticize the Almighty? I mean, who does Job think he is? I mean, what if I were playing golf with Phil Mickelson, one of the greatest golfers to ever swing a stick? I mean, what right would I have to start giving old Phil pointers? Hey, Phil, come on over here and let old Sandy teach you a thing or two. Let me show you how to hold that, that club. I mean, who's, who's kidding who? But you see, Job is being just as arrogant. He's trying to coach God on how to run the universe. Who in the world does Job think he is? Job has gotten way out of line. See, here's a quote for you. If there's anything a sufferer needs, it's not an explanation, but a fresh new look at God. See, we think we need an answer that we'll never be satisfied until we know why. But what we really need is a vision of God. For when God appears and we see Him in His glory, the reason for the trial no longer matters. All that really matters is God. What we need is not an explanation, but a revelation of God's goodness and justice in His heart toward us. Well, Job thinks he's learned his lesson. Listen to his reply to God in chapter 40, verse 4. He says this, 40, verse 4. Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. Now, at first, it may seem as if Job has gotten the message, but I don't think so. 
See, all that's happened is Job has gone from pounding to now pouting. He's gone from beating his fist to now sticking out his lip. In essence, he's saying, okay, God, you win. You've made your point. From now on, I'm just going to shut up and serve you. See, Job agrees to serve the Lord, but you can bet he's going to serve God with a grudge. And i got to ask you, do you know anybody who's been serving God with a grudge? See, Job has accepted God's sovereignty, for he has no other choice, but he doesn't really like it. Realize, God doesn't want us to pound or to pout. You see, there's a third option. God wants us to praise Him for who He is, come what may. God wants us to embrace His sovereignty with a loving, trusting wholeheartedness. See, you can say lovingly, Lord, Thy will be done. Or you can say begrudgingly, all right then, God, have it your way. And here Job is doing the latter. He's giving in only because he has no other option. And God is not through correcting Job's attitude. Again, God comes to Job in the whirlwind. And in chapter 40, verse 7, he says to him, Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. You see, God didn't like the first answers he got from Job. And so he asked some more questions. And in chapter 40, God points to two enormous, powerful animals, the behemoth and the Leviathan. And he asked Job if he can even contain them, let alone create them. Job seems pretty puny when pitted up against these mighty forces. See, God is relentless in his humbling of Job, for he is after in Job what he wants from us. Not reluctance, but repentance. God wants Job and us to rejoice in his sovereignty, to worship him despite our situation. God wants us to acknowledge that he not only runs the universe, but he runs our lives, and he is better at it than we are. Friends, God does all things well all of the time. Today, when a church builds a sanctuary, the architect is careful to optimize all of the sight lines. So that it doesn't matter where you're sitting in the room, you can see all that's going on up front. There's not a bad room in the house, a bad view in the house. But the Reformation architects of the great cathedrals in Europe, they had the opposite idea. They deliberately created worship venues where your view was blocked by a pillar or a rail or perhaps an awkward angle where you couldn't see everything that was going on up front. It was a reminder that some truths about God are hidden. No one knows all there is to know about God. We all worship God from a limited vantage point. Well, Job finally realizes this truth in chapter 42, verse 1. This time when Job answers God, he gets it right. He says humbly, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You ask, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you will, shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Obviously, Job has a change of attitude. 
Friends, listen. Job never did learn why, but he learned something far more valuable. He learned who. And when you really know who, you don't need to know why. You know, there are people I know whose chief ambition in getting to heaven is to get answers to their questions. And oh, I'm sure they'll get their answers. But I'm just as certain that when they get to heaven, their answers won't be nearly as important as they thought. For when we see the beauties and the glories of our Lord Jesus, all of the perplexities and questions will be overshadowed. In the end, the who will swallow up all of the whys. Following the difficult days of World War II, King George VI of England, he made a statement to his countrymen about the uncertainties of the coming new year. I said to the man at the gate of the year, Give me a light that I may walk safely into the unknown. But he said to me, Go out into the darkness and put your hand in the hand of God, and it shall be to you better than the light and safer than the known. Imagine that. The hand of God, even better than the light and even safer than the known. See, some of us are walking out into uncertain futures and we've been questioning God. Don't you think a better approach would be to grip his hand just a little tighter? Once there was an old man, he was taking a walk with his young grandson. When he asked the boy, he said, son, do you know where you are? No, grandpa, I don't. Well, son, do you know how far you are from home? No, sir. Well, son, it sounds like to me you're lost. Little boy Grandy said, nope, Grandpa, I can't be lost. Grandpa asked him, he said, well, why can you be so sure? The little guy replied, I can't be lost, Grandpa, because I'm with you. And this is what God wants us to realize. That even when we don't understand, even when there's no explanation, we are never lost when we're with God. He can be trusted. So, how do you cope with the poison ivy in your life? Here's what Job would tell us. God is sovereign. He is a big God. He takes orders from no one. He does as he pleases without getting our permission or giving us an explanation. That's why we need to turn off our complaints and our doubts and our questions. And we need to turn on our praise. For God is worthy to be worshipped. Love God. Don't fight him. Trust God. Don't question him. Real faith doesn't need to know why when it's certain of who. Always remember this statement. What's over my head is still under God's feet. Would you like to try it with me? You ready? What's over my head is still under God's feet. Sound like a bunch of Giants fans. You want to try it again? With a little bit of cowboy gusto. You ready? Everybody ready? What's over my head is still under God's feet. God loves you so much. He really does. In fact, He is so proud of you that He has staked His honor on your reactions. Imagine this. Your response to difficulty is going to bring Him glory. Father, thank you. For your word to us this morning. Thank you for this age-old story, Lord. It never grows old. It's so applicable to our lives today. 
And Lord, I have no doubt there are a Job or two in the crowd this morning. There are some folks here, Lord, that have gotten angry with you. They've gotten upset. They've questioned you. They've been pounding their fist. They want to know why. Oh, Lord, you don't owe us an explanation. You don't owe us a response. You are so worthy. You have done so much for us. You gave Jesus upon the cross for us, Lord. And if that's all you ever did for us, it would be more than we deserved. Lord, help us to turn off our questions and our doubts and our anger this morning. And help us to turn on our praise. Help us to love you, Lord. Reveal yourself to us, Lord. Help us to know that when we know who, we don't need to know why. Work in our hearts this morning, we ask you. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Great. God bless you.